to Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. Hi, podcast listeners. It's Rhea with you once again with Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm here with my friend David King, the president of Alexander Haas, which is a company devoted to helping institutions raise more money. So I know a lot of you have questions about fundraising, and David is here to answer all. So thanks so much for having me, David. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got your start in philanthropy. I got into philanthropy by mistake. I actually was in college and I was looking for a part-time job and I ended up applying for sort of an office clerk job at a company that had a lot of names in it. And when I went to interview for that job, it turns out it was a fundraising consulting firm and not a law firm like I thought it was. But I think at that time it was 1985 or 86 and they were paying like $5.50 an hour, which back then was a lot of money and it was two blocks from campus so it was going to be easy to do. So I took the job and over time just sort of started doing more than just making copies and you know delivering packages. This was before this was before email and before the internet was reliable. So we actually I hand delivered things to people's offices. But I sort of started to pick up some of what was going on by osmosis. And then that firm actually split into two firms. And when that happened, about half of the staff left. And that created some voids for somebody to fill. So I sort of, I knew the systems and I picked up a lot of how things work. So I sort of jumped in. I was probably at that point, the only one working at the firm who, who grew up in a world where I had been using a computer since the eighth grade. So the technology real adaptable to, and that gave me an advantage. So that kind of gave me an opportunity to, to do a little more and to really learn fundraising. And then when I graduated from college, I really wasn't sure, like a lot of people, what I wanted to do next. Um, I was thinking of going to graduate school. I was thinking of going to law school. I, was, I just sort of hadn't found my way yet. But I had this experience working for this fundraising consulting firm. So I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get a job in development. I have the skill set to do it. I'm going to take a year off and just, just work. And so I felt like just working and not going to school was going to be like a vacation for me, practically. And so that was my plan. Year off, figure out what I want to do, go back to graduate school. And that was 30 years ago, and I still haven't gone back to graduate school. So Yeah, I was going to say, that's a very long year off. <laughs> As somebody who's been in the fundraising field for a good long time, what is it that you love about fundraising? Because I hear so often that people feel like they're burnt out on fundraising, and I think obviously you found something to keep you going and that is generative for you? I think it's a little easier for me in a consulting firm because even though I've been with this firm for, for almost 30 years, the clients change fairly frequently. So, so there's a lot of variety, new projects, different kinds of projects. I could be working with private school, college, university, a museum, and a in an animal shelter all at the same time. So there's a lot of variety there. I think people do get burned out when they're, stay at one institution for a very long time. I think they can get into a rut. That can happen with, with all kinds of jobs, but certainly with a fundraising job, it can happen. So I think that does happen. The converse of that, which I see more and more now, is, is people not staying long enough, staying in a job for 18 months or two years and then, and then moving to the next job before they've really had a chance to accomplish much um, in the organization. So I think the variety helps. But I think the thing that also helps is 
is if you really peel this all the way back to the core, what we're trying to do, our work in nonprofits, as well as anybody working in nonprofits, is we're trying to make the world a better place. Most often by making people's lives better, but sometimes by making animal welfare better or improving health care or, or giving people an education as a stepping stone to a better future for their entire family. So I think we have everybody has good days and bad days at work, right? But I think if you're working in a nonprofit and you're having a bad day, you know, you can peel that onion all the way back and look at look at the good that's coming out of what you're doing and it's maybe re-energize yourself. To get to the tactical a little bit, when you are engaged with a new client and they say that they want to take their fundraising to the next level, what are the steps and analysis that you do in order to help them to get to that next level, whatever that might be? So we, we, have, a, we have a bunch of little sayings around here that kind of keep us centered and on task. And one of them is that you have to listen before you start talking or your answers will be meaningless. So the first thing that we really do is we try to get a really good understanding of what's currently going on with you. You know, one of the other things I talk with clients about all the time when we talk about planning is planning a fundraising campaign is sort of like creating a map, but I can give you the best map in the world. I, I can give you, you know, the, a phone with Google Maps on it, but if you don't have location services on and it doesn't know where you're standing right now, it can't get you anywhere. And so the same applies to, to trying to elevate someone's fundraising program is the first thing that we have to do is we really have to come in and understand everything that's going on now. Find the areas where there can be improvement, find the things that are already being done really well and see if there are ways to, to enhance those. Look for things that maybe aren't being done at all that we can add to their arsenal. But it's really the first step is finding out exactly what's going on, what everybody on the staff is doing, you know, what the division of responsibilities are, looking at multi-years of performance to see, are we on a growth trend? Are we on a downtrend? What's happening here? But it's really to find out, take a snapshot, where are you right this minute? So that then we can work on developing strategies to move, hopefully, up from that point. What are the key areas that you're looking at? You mentioned staff and responsibilities, giving trends. Do you also consider things like board composition, marketing, communications, and so forth? We do. With, with most of our clients, we will, we will do a digital footprint analysis. We want to find out, do they have one? <laughs> and surprisingly, some still don't. But you know, are they using social media to help with their brand? If they're not, then, then they're behind the times doing that. We, look, we do look at board composition and we look very specifically at board giving to see a list of uh, maybe the last three to five years of board giving by individual board member. So we most definitely look at that. We look at, we look at staff. Not, we're not trying to evaluate whether, it's, whether a particular staff member is good or not good at their job. You, know, you can't really do that in a 30-minute informational interview. But what we try to look at is responsibilities, both the responsibilities that are in their job descriptions and the things they picked up along the way that aren't even in their job descriptions and try to make sure that that everybody is doing something that matches with their skill set. They're doing things that, that flow together well, that the organization is working well, that we don't have you know a person sitting over here who's just swamped and overwhelmed because they keep getting tasks dumped on them. And then we have someone over here who's not. But we do most definitely get into looking at, at, at leadership, staffing structure, board structure, board composition. We'll review board bylaws. We look at, at board committee and board meeting minutes. I mean, we sort of get into from the top down, the top being the governance level. How is this organization being governed? What is the board getting? All the way down to 
What does the receptionist say when she answers the telephone? Is it a warm greeting that invites people into the organization or is it something that makes people wish they hadn't dialed the number? Oh gosh, <laughs> what a terrible thing to imagine <laughs> you're gonna call a nonprofit to give money and someone's not going to be welcoming you with open arms. So let's talk a little bit about board because you and I have discussed how boards can make or break yep. the success of a nonprofit. So can you tell me some things about ways in which boards can help or hinder their nonprofit? I'll start with hinder because I'll do hinder and then just do the opposite of everything that I said. So I think, I think one of the things that, that can really hold an organization back is when they have a board that is not committed to moving the mission forward with their own financial commitments. So mm-hmm. one of the things we look for with every organization we work with is board giving. And, and sort of the minimum entry point level of that is everybody on the board has to be making a gift every year at some level. That's, that's just, that's the minimum that's makes you average at best, right? So, so that's what we're looking at. And I know we work with organizations and there are, are lots of organizations that, that work with at-risk communities and part of their, their, culture is to have members of those communities represented on their board so that they always have that perspective. And and that is a good thing. But we also expect those people to be financial contributors, even if it's $5. One of the things that can really hold an organization back is if they get create a situation, and this happens all the time, where essentially the expectations are different for almost every board member. Because in the process of recruiting them, they've negotiated. Uh, we told Bob's a big donor, so we told Bob he doesn't have to give any to come to any meetings. He just has to keep giving. And Sally, Sally is not a big donor, so we told her she doesn't have to give. But we wanted to chair this committee or that committee, and they, they've just created every board member has a different level of responsibility, and it just it creates a board that's just not functional. And so that's and one of those things we look at is don't you need to to have an expectation of giving from all of them. And, and I can tell you that when we've done this with organizations where they had clients, so an organization serving people, poor people or, or people, not a homeless shelter necessarily, but that next step out. So people who may have been homeless and now they're transitioning, but they still have very limited resources. And we tell our clients is you, they're not able to give a big gift. We all know that and they know it, but you're doing them a disservice not to ask them if they want to help to give them that opportunity. So I think that's one thing is that when someone goes onto a board, they need to understand that there is a, a very real obligation to give and give at a level that's meaningful to them, different from all for all of us, that that is an important thing. And, and if they're not doing that, it can hold the organization back because that is something that other donors, particularly foundations, look at when they're evaluating whether they're going to contribute to an organization. So that, you know, that is a, that's a big thing that, that a a board, if a board is not doing that, it really can hold the organization back. Do we have a board who all the expectations for them are all the same? Everybody's expected to come to meetings. Everybody's expected to serve on one committee. Everybody's expected to give a gift that's meaningful to at their level and whatever else the organization really needs and to try to make sure that, that those are aligned. And then we do look at, are all the members of the board given? Is this, this, because if you're not giving to an organization and you go out and try to sell others on giving to it, you have no credibility, it's completely eroded. So, so that's one of the things, I think a board can do to hold an organization back is to not be contributing and not have some real expectations across the board that everybody follows. You know, when you talk about what a board can do to really enhance the organization, one thing is to just, to be a positive advocate for the organization everywhere that you go. 
And if the organization is moving in a direction that you can't support, then you need to move, then you need to leave the organization. Don't be, don't be the person who's sabotaging it from within. You know, we do see this sometimes. It doesn't happen a lot, but we'll see a board member who the organization's moving in a direction that board member doesn't want to agree with. And so they badmouth, they start badmouthing the organization. And there's nothing worse than having an insider out badmouthing the organization. So if the organization's not, if you're not in alignment with the organization, it's sort of your responsibility as a board member to recognize that and move on. I think one of the things that, that boards need to be conscious of not doing, because I think it's a, there's a real lure to do it, is to governing, not managing the organization. Board's job is to set the mission the vision and the policies of the organization. And then it's the staff's job to execute on that. So don't get into micromanaging. You've hired a director, let the director run the organization. If you don't like the way the director's running the organization, then remove them and get a new director. But don't jump in as board members and, and get into the day-to-day operations. That It's just not an inappropriate role, but it's so tempting to do. <laughs> One thing that I have been talking with folks a lot recently is the absentee board member, and especially in New York, where people tend to be totally overscheduled. I'm sure that's true of everyone all over the place. But how would you recommend talking with board members that they have the best intentions and they give and they they really mean to come to meetings, but they just aren't really present? And, And I think that can be hard because you know that the interest is there in their hearts, but their schedules are not really aligning. So I think what happens... We're, I think we're always afraid that when we go to talk to somebody who's having that experience, that we're going to make them mad. And I think the reality when I've been in those situations with clients is that we're actually, the person is actually relieved because they are, they know what they signed up for if they were recruited, right? And they know they're not doing it. So they're walking, they're harboring all this guilt. If, if you're a board member and you're, you're RSVPing to board meetings and then at the last, last minute not going, if you really do care about the organization, then you're harboring a lot of guilt about that. And and when I've had clients go to a board member and say, you haven't been to the last four board meetings, it seems to be difficult for you to get here. Would it be easier for you to move from the board now and then maybe come back when you have more time and can be more engaged? And, And usually the answer to that is one of two things. Oh, thank you so much. You're right. I don't have time to do it. And I've been feeling so bad from it but I've got these huge projects going on or I've got three kids or whatever it may be. I think that's the best thing, but I would like to come back when it strings out. Or they'll say, you're right. I need to make this a better priority. I apologize and I'll be better. It's usually one of those two things. It's, ne- it's never, oh, how dare you say I'm not fulfilling my obligation. It just doesn't, because people know, you know, they know right. whether they're doing what they were asked to do or not. So it, it, it tends to work itself out in one of those two ways and everybody ends up being happier about it. And I think that's part of, that's just part of communication flow. When I, you know, I do encounter people from time to time who are afraid of their boards or afraid of some of their board members. And that's just an unhealthy situation that has to be resolved. I mean, you can't, you can't be in a situation where you, where you can't have real, meaningful, straightforward conversations with your board in both directions, staff to board and board to staff. I think in those situations, you just have to, you have to be, you have to be honest and you have to try to look at it from, from the other person's perspective and what they might be feeling. And most often that's they're disappointed in themselves and you're really helping them by giving them a chance to, to not continue to disappoint themselves. Let me ask one last question about boards, because I think it's such an important element of a successful nonprofit, which is 
how do you tap into different networks? So what often happens, I've noticed, is if you have some board members, they then recruit their friends. They tend to be sort of in the same industry or the same people. And then conversely, especially if you are working with a a newer ED who may not have deep connections in other industries and networks, it can be hard to recruit people that represent a diversity across the board. So how do you recommend that folks kind of tap into those different networks? So one of the things that we try to get our clients to adapt is just an operating philosophy is to, is to move away from a nominating committee and move mm-hmm. to a committee on trusteeship. So the nominating committee, the way those tend to operate is three weeks before the next board meeting, the executive director reminds the nominating committee chair that they need to fill three board slots. And then they scramble to see who they can get. Well, that's not very effective in getting, getting engaged new board members, diverse new board members, are good new board members. It's not how we would hire some a staff person. Why would we recruit a board member that way? So what we would ask them to do is have a, have a committee on trusteeship that meets throughout the year, that maintains an ongoing list of targets for board, and that they're cultivating those people to be ready to take that role. And you and they can, you know, they can target people who might not say yes if they asked them today but that with some deliberate education and work and relationship building, they can get them to a point where they are ready to serve on the board and they can take a holistic view of the board. So not who can we get to agree by next Thursday's meeting, but what skill sets are we lacking on this board? Are we doing something that we really would be helpful to have a real estate attorney on this board because we're trying to buy land? Do we need an accountant? We certainly want people with the capacity to give. There may be a particular corporation in your community that dominates the landscape, and you really have to have a representative from that corporation on the board, but you want to make sure it's somebody high up in the hierarchy, so you you target that. You may also target diversity. You look at the, at the community you're in or the, or the community that you serve, and you say, we're not when I look around this room, we're not representative of that. So you begin to you can target diversity. But if you if you go about it like that systematically, then you get out of the who can we get and you get into who do we want. You begin to work and cultivate those people and then invite them to join the board when they're ready. And don't worry that you have two slots open. You'd rather be better to fill those two slots with the right people who fit your needs and are really engaged than to go out and just grab somebody and drop them on the board. So that's what we try to get people to think about is that board recruitment is as important or more important as your major gift fundraising work. And you need to have a process for how you go about doing it so that you're really targeting people that can elevate the level of your board, not just people who will say yes. I want to switch tacks a little bit and talk about staff. So, so often when I work with executives and and sometimes their development team, I feel like there's some unspoken anxiety about money mm-hmm. and particularly for executive directors who will say like, oh, I, I just, I can't, I don't like fundraising. It's just part of my job, but it's not something I enjoy. How do you help executives and other staff members get past that anxiety about money and the power differential that they perceive? Yeah, and volunteers, some volunteers have that too, you know, where oh, yeah. you'll have, you'll hear volunteers say, I just hate raising money. Begging for money, which yeah. I hear a lot. So there are a couple of things that we try to do with that. One is we try to get them back to, to not thinking about this as fundraising, but thinking about it as development work. And that may sound like I'm, I'm sort of using different semantics, but it's really different. So when we think about, when we talk about helping our clients with building development programs and doing development work, which is the terminology we try to use, 
what we're really talking about is developing relationships. So develop and really relationships, obviously there'll be relationships between the individuals, between the staff and the board or whomever and the, and the donor or the prospective donor. So those relationships will develop, but really what we're talking about is developing the relationship between the donor and the institution to find meaningful connections between the two, things the donor is passionate about and things that your organization is doing in those areas. And so one of the things that I tell clients is just because somebody has money and you need money does not mean you have the basis for a relationship. There has to be something else in there. So the first thing we try to get them to do is not, you know, don't think about it as fundraising. Don't think the ask, asking for money is a point in a development process, but it's only at one point. There's a lot of stuff that should be going on before that and a lot that should be going on after it. It's just one point. And, and if you go into it and all you're focused on is the ask, then, then you'll have a couple of things happen. One is you might have a lot of anxiety because people in this culture don't like to ask for money. Even if it's not for themselves, there's sort of a stigma attached to it. So you may have that anxiety. You also, you may jump the gun. If you think your job is just to ask for money and that's all you do, then you're going to miss the signs that someone is or isn't engaged, that they that they are ready to, to respond to an ask or that they aren't. So it's really, we try to get them to focus on that, on strengthening and building the relationship. And our, our feeling and our experience is if we can get, if we can find those connections where something we're doing really resonates with, with things the donor wants to accomplish and bring them in and find that connection and begin to educate them and share that with them and strengthen that relationship and get them to start using we when they talk about the organization. So not what are you doing to address homelessness, but what are we doing to it? They start getting them to use we, then you'll get to a point where you almost don't have to do the fundraising part of the cycle because mm -hmm. they're engaged now. So you approach them with challenges or opportunities and, and they offer advice and money to, to mm -hmm. accomplish those things. So yes, you may have to make the, you still may have to, you still will have to ask, but you're asking when you already know what the answer is going to be. You right. already know the answer is yes. The variable is probably how much you're going to get a yes. The other thing that we try to do when we run into it to either staff members or volunteers who are either new to fundraising or say they don't like it or maybe they've had a bad experience is to set them up in their early calls where they are guaranteed to be successful. Make, pick the low-hanging fruit first because I have seen numerous cases, particularly with, with executive directors in, in human service organizations where they may have come out of, they may have come up through the ranks of the organization and, they, and the direction that they came, this happens with college presidents too sometimes, they've never had to ask for money before. They were in, they were delivering program. They didn't have to ask for money and all of a sudden they have to. So it works for them too. set them up in a situation where, where you know the answer is yes and get some success. And what I've seen happen with that is that, that there is kind of an adrenaline rush when you get that yes. And when you get a, a large gift whatever, by whatever, however many commas and zeros that is to you, when you get that large gift and you're gonna accomplish it, you get that, that endorphin and that rush at work, we were successful. And I've seen people after a little few successes like that become junkies for that feeling again. Right? Oh, so I've, I'm, I've been I'm, there. I love fundraising now. I love it. I love getting that gift. I want to go out and close the gift. So you can make it happen if you set it up right so that they are successful. And I've seen people who are, you know, who are very introverted still be really successful 
fundraisers. And, and some of that is because they tend to be really good listeners. And that's a big piece of, of being successful, I think, in, in fundraising is being a good listener. You know, being able to listen to what the, instead of rushing out and telling the donor about everything you need, listening to what they're trying to accomplish, and then figure out if you have any crossover. And sometimes there's not. Sometimes the, there's somebody has a lot of money, they give to a lot of things, but what you're doing just isn't their thing. And that's okay. But you just have to, if you're not listening, can, you can run into a, to a brick wall with an ask that the donor just wasn't going to be responsive to. So that's a big piece of it too, is you know, sort of shut up and listen. I want to switch tacks a little bit and talk about staff. So a lot of my listeners are running smaller nonprofits and they're often asking, when do I hire a development director? And when I do, what am I looking for? So can you give us any guidelines with respect to at what point of an organization's evolution you should consider a development director? And when you do, are you looking for a specialist or a generalist? So understand that I probably am biased in how I answer this and that I have worked in fundraising my entire career. So my answer would be as soon as you can afford it. I feel like your development director or at least a development coordinator or a development assistant or somebody whose full-time job is development be one of the first hires you make. If I'm running a company and I'm selling widgets, one of my first, I'm going to hire the guy who makes the widgets. And then the next thing I'm going to do is hire the guy who can sell the widgets. So I think that's the case here too. And I think I think even if you have an executive director or a founder who has experience in, in fundraising and is good at it, there is a lot of behind the scenes stuff that needs to be happening and has to happen that you don't want that executive director doing. You don't want the executive director spending nine hours a day at their computer doing prospect research. You need somebody to do that. So even if you're not ready for a director of development, just somebody who comes into the office every day and all they're thinking about is improving fundraising. They're getting the letters out. They're getting the emails out. They're making sure that the executive director's following up with the people they need to follow up on. They're looking at lapsed donors from last year and, and come, making sure they get renewed. If people have multi-year pledges, they're monitoring that and making sure they get pledge reminders, that they're just managing the mechanics. Again, even if it's somebody who maybe has one zero, one, two years in development work. So they're really not ready to run a program, but with direction, they can keep all of the wheels spinning. So I think it's something that needs to happen to happen really early because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how great the program is. If you can't pay the light bill, you're not going to be able to execute on it. And so it frustrates me when I hear people talk about development staff as overhead. They're not overhead. They're not overhead any more than a salesman your widget company is overhead. They're the engine that allows you to do what you do. So I, so I think it's as soon as you can, as soon as you can afford it, and probably one, one of the first four or five, six people that you hire should probably be somebody to keep their eye on development all the time. So to reference something you said earlier in the conversation, and I know this is true, having hired a number of development directors myself, you see people who've been at their previous jobs for one year or two years, and it seems like a, a little bit of a merry-go-round. So I'm wondering, how do you know if you're hiring someone who's worth their salt? So I've started describing that. You said merry-go-round. I've started to describe it as it's a game of musical chairs, only in, only in reverse. There are more chairs than people. And so every time somebody gets up, somebody else just sits down in their chair, but there's still an open chair. So it is, it's become, you did, this was not your question, but, but I think it's a problem for the, for the industry. 
people moving. I think I saw recently that the average tenure now of development officers is like 16 months. It's just not very long. And if you, if you come at it the way I come at it or the way we come at it here with that this is not fundraising, it's development, how much relationship developing can you do in 16 months? I mean, most people spend more time than that date on, you know, dating somebody here, you know, so it, I think that's a problem that it's rotating, but it, but it certainly is happening. And so there was a time years ago when if I looked at a resume and I saw someone had had four jobs in the last 10 years, I would just throw the resume in the trash. You know, this person's a job hopper. I'm looking for somebody who's going to stay the course. I'm not going to do that. Well, if I did that now, I'd have no resumes left on my desk when I was done. So it is a reality. So I think there's a couple of things that I think people can do when they're hiring that, that will help them to get the right person. Whether they can keep them long-term is a different issue, but, but to get them, there are a couple of things. And I think one is to determine from the outset what skill sets you re are really important for you to have for this particular position, whatever it is, and then come up with, with some questions you're going to ask every candidate that will really let you know if they have experience doing that. So one of the things, if you need somebody who, who can go out and ask people for money, ask them about, tell me about the most successful solicitation you ever made. Tell me about the most difficult solicitation you ever made. And if they can't jump right into those answers fairly quickly, because we all remember that, the, the gift we got, we felt the best about, and the time we just crashed and burned. We know, I mean, if they can't pull that quickly, then they probably haven't really done it. You know, it may say on their resume they were involved in securing gifts. They may have written the strategy memo and stayed back at the office when the ask was made. So come up with some questions that allow them to, to tell you stories about their successes and potentially their, their challenges and really affirms for you that, that, that they have done what you want to do. The other thing that, that we do when we hire and that we tell our clients to do when they hire is don't even waste your time asking a candidate to give you a list of references because one of two things is going to happen. Either everybody you're going to call is going to say fabulous things about them because they, they picked them for that reason and they coached them on what to say. I've served as references for people. You probably have too, where they'll call you up and go, hey, you're going to get a call. This is what they're looking for. You know, will you tell them this? Or the, other, the only other possible outcome to that, other than they, they say that you're the, you know, you're the second coming of the, of the Savior, the only other possible outcome is they don't say that, which means this person is, is ignorant of how they're perceived by the individuals they're putting on their references list. Oh, yeah. We could do a whole other podcast about that, too. What kind of judgment is that? You put that right. first? That was your reference? You know, poor yeah. judgment, not hiring you. So what we, try to, what we encourage our clients to do, and this works great if you're, if you're in a community of any size, really, New York, Atlanta, or a small community, and you're hiring from within the community, even in giant cities like New York, Atlanta, Chicago, Boston, the nonprofit community tends to be a pretty tight-knit group. We all go to the same AFP meetings. We all go to philanthropy day together. We have a lot of connections. So what I encourage people to do is look at that organization, look at their other staff members, look at their board members, look at or you know look back, look at the person's resume and see where they've been and see who you know that would have interacted with them there and call that person and ask. You know that person is more free to have a conversation and and you'll find out you know you'll get some uncensored feedback were they good were they not were they easy to work with did the other staff members like them i mean you might not get a person who 
is in a position to evaluate their actual work, but you'll get a person who can tell you how do they work with others? Were they well-respected in the organization? Did the, was the organization happier or sad when they left? That's a great question to ask somebody and tell you everything you need to know. Were you happy or sad when he left? Right. I was really happy. Okay, then I don't need that mess over here. But, but reach out, use your own network and reach out and, and ask questions and try to get, try to get some, some feedback that's going to be more objective than if you just go to the list of six people that they told you to call as references. So I think asking, asking good questions, not just have you done major gift fundraising, but tell me about and, and your life experiences and then doing real reference checking. I mean, I even tell people when they're talking to us about hiring our firm and they talk about references, I say, look at our client list. There's 2000 clients on there. Pick five. I'll give you a contact with all five. But if you just want me to give you a list of five references, you don't need to bother to call them. Because I'm only going to give you five people who will tell you that we that we invented the moon and hung it. And were it not for us, it would have already fallen and I'd be glowing. So don't waste your time and don't waste you know, my time either. And you're making such a good point because I feel like a lot of people skip that crucial reference check step. It's hard. And yeah, it is really hard. And But I, I can think of a couple of instances in which that reference check made the difference for me to not hire somebody. My last question to you is, what are some of the trends that you're seeing in philanthropy? We're certainly seeing a lot more organizations of all sizes um, begin to use data mining and, and beginning to rely on some analytics and wealth screening and predictive modeling. That used to be something that only the big hospitals and the big universities would do. Um, but like most things in technology, you know, that's gotten so much cheaper to do now that that organizations of all sizes can do it. We, we even do um, some wealth screening stuff with our small church clients now because they tend to, to, even though they're in a church setting, they tend to not have a, have a lot of data about their members. Maybe don't know, you know, you can't tell if somebody's rich by what kind of car they drive. You know, that's, right. that's not a good data point. So I think that is one that we're seeing organizations of, of all sizes now take advantage of the technology that's out there for data and prospect identification. I think that's certainly one. You know, one of the things that, that's happening, and this is real, and I'm curious to see with the tax law changes from last year, if it, if it accelerates this trend, is we're seeing, even though many organizations are reporting record years in fundraising, they're doing it from fewer donors, which hmm. is an interesting dynamic. I mean, lots of our clients are, are reporting fewer donors, but more money. So I don't, what I I suspect is happening, and, th- and there's not good, enough good data to do this at the moment, but what I suspect it is, is people are just, are still giving as generously as before, just to fewer organizations, so that we're not actually losing donors from the big pool, but they're just, but some organizations are losing them because they're giving more to others. But that mm-hmm. is most definitely something that we're seeing is, is a decline in the number of donors, even as the amount contributed to go up. I will be curious to see as we get toward toward June when Giving USA comes out, if there's any data that suggests that donors really did bundle gifts this year because of the tax law change. So mm-hmm. instead of giving, they weren't going to be able to, you know, they were they were going to use the standard deduction because they weren't going to be up to the threshold for the for the itemized deduction if they operated business as usual. So instead of giving an organization a thousand dollars a year every year. They gave them 5000 this year, and then they won't give for the next four years because they're sure. or they put a bunch of money in a donor advised fund. They'll itemize their tax return this year, but not the next year. So I will be curious to see. That is a trend that has been predicted 
and I'll be curious to see if it, if it actually is a trend. The other thing that we're watching carefully, and and I just this, just this week I wrote an article that Forbes published in their nonprofit council section of their website about cryptocurrency, increasing use of cryptocurrency for philanthropy, and most not most organizations are completely unequipped to deal with that. You know, if a donor mm-hmm. shows up on their doorstep and says, I want to give you, you know, 100 Bitcoin, they have no idea how to deal with it, what to do mm-hmm. with it. I mean, how to value it. It's, you know, it's just and it's happening more and more. I mean, it's part of the reason it's happening is it's for people who are in early. It's a really highly appreciated asset right now. And so and it has to be treated. It's treated as an asset, both from a from a tax perspective for the donor, but as an accounting perspective for for the non profit, it's treated as if someone gave you an asset, not a dollar. So giving you a Bitcoin isn't giving you a dollar. It's giving you whatever that's valued at today on the exchanges. So you have to treat it. But most organizations, they, they don't know how to handle it. They don't know how to value it. They don't have a financial institution that can accept it for them. Cryptocurrency in 2017, cryptocurrency was the was the fastest growing type of contribution into donor advised funds at Fidelity. It went from about 7 million the year in 2016 to almost 70 million in 2017, faster than any. So it's happening. Even if it hasn't happened to you yet, it is happening. So you can be prepared for it, understand what it is, understand how to accept it, understand how to get rid of it, have a board policy about what you're going to do with it when somebody gives it to you. I mean, it, it can mm-hmm. be a volatile asset. Do you want to yep. hold it like an investment or is your policy sell it as soon as it comes in and, and yeah. get it in liquid form? So even if you don't know anyone who's received it yet, be prepared because it's happening. That's such great advice. Actually, we did a podcast with someone who, who is an expert in blockchain, but I think it's a great reminder that we should revisit the cryptocurrency in yep. particular. Yep. So it's the way of the world. And I think blockchain in particular has a lot of interesting, there's a lot of interesting things around the transparency of donations and how you're able to trace that. So that's super interesting. Well, there, that's one of the issues that we too about you know if you're going if you're deciding that you're going to accept cryptocurrency but you don't have to like you don't have to accept a used car if you don't want to Mm -hmm. if you decide you're going to accept it what are your rules around it are you going to accept it if it comes anonymously and you have because you can get cryptocurrency without having any knowledge of where of who the donor was well are you going to do that what if it you know you don't know the source of the money what if it's came from illegal activities. Do you want to be funneling money from illegal activities into your program? And the other part of that is, if it came from illegal activities and and the person who gave it ends up getting arrested for the illegal activities, the government can come and take that back from you. So, right. are you, you know, and the so the issue there becomes, will we accept completely anonymous contributions of cryptocurrency? The answer should probably be no. <laughs> but that's the that's almost the only kind of transaction you can make other than sending somebody an envelope full of cash with no return address, where the complete anonymity is possible. I, I would like to note for all of my listeners out there, big piles of anonymous cash are always welcome. <laughs> well, David, this has been super fun. I really appreciate your time. Any last words for our listeners as we sign off? Uh, no, I just say, you, I mean, keep doing what you're doing. It's, you know, the nonprofit sector, really fills a lot of holes that need to be filled in our society and, and even at the at the street level and at the at the level of, of higher education institutions who are lifting you know, generations of families out of poverty by giving them an education. 
It's the number, you know, food, shelter, clothing, you have to do it to keep people alive. But if you want to empower them to live, they, have, they need education. And, and so we have to focus on the, on the gamut. And so everybody just keep doing what you're doing. Keep filling those holes. Thank you so much, David. It's a pleasure. And we'll make sure to put all of your information in the show notes so folks know how to get in touch with you. Great. Yeah. Call me, email me. Love to talk. Great. Thanks so much. Take care. Have a great day. Bye-bye.